For November 10th, 2009, it's the Overthinking It podcast supplement, Mad Men, season three finale. Welcome to this special supplement to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject Mad Men, uh, just having finished its third season, to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Though I think that we'd all agree uh, that in the case of this show, it does deserve it. From... Which makes it more like which makes it more like Gossip Girl and Glee than like the other things that are discussed on Overthinking It podcast. <laughs> on the podcast, I'm we your host, start Matthew Rather, and I am I am barely able to contain uh, the two panelists. My, my two co-panelists tonight, uh, Ryan Sheely and Matthew Belinky. It's a good thing that they are separated by 150, 200 miles of eastern seaboard yeah. because uh, they'd be going at each other over uh, the great glee debacle of autumn. <laughs> Matt, we actually well, have to legally, legally separate. You see, they can't even... 150 miles is the least that that the courts will allow us to be. <laughs> restraining. There's a restraining order, yeah. <laughs> right. Measured um, miles. You know, yeah, uh, well, so it's, it's a good thing, too. And as Ryan said, it is a testament uh, to the power of Mad Men that it can bring these two <laughs> uh, people together. So you have Matthew Belenke, Ryan Sheely, and Matthew Rather on with you tonight. And though this is not a regular episode of the Overthinking It podcast. It is a special supplement for Mad Men and contains spoilers up to and including the finale of season three. Um, we, uh, we're going to run it a little bit like we run the regular podcast and begin with a question. Uh, favorite season three moment? And we'll go in alphabetical order uh, because Matt has the uh, Matt has the one that I think is on everybody's mind. Blinky, what was your favorite season three moment? I'd I'd have to say it's the Lawnmower Man. Uh, they they bring in I forget the gentleman's name. But the <laughs> that, British, do you do you mean it's the Lawnmower Man? <laughs> yeah, no. I believe I mean, the guy's name is Guy, right? Uh, yeah, they, they they bring in a gentleman from the British company that, that owns the agency, and he's supposed to be the new guy in charge. And there's sort of a mystery surrounding him because he's said to be fascinated with Don Draper. I think they say numerous points early in the episode that he's been studying Don Draper, and he's he's really uh, – and, and they sort of set him up as like, you know, who is this guy? Is he friend? Is he foe? How is Don going to tackle this, this mysterious man from England who was sent in for mysterious purposes? And then uh, during the party to welcome him to the office uh his foot is chopped off by a lawnmower in, in the middle of the office um literally <laughs> there there's a lawnmower that's been brought into the office to celebrate uh closing the john deere account and uh somebody is a uh, secretary i believe is is driving it around in a in a drunken uh fit of merriment and uh the guy has to have his foot amputated at which point the parent company of course removes him from his new position because they can't have a one-footed executive in charge of the agency. Uh, and that's, that's the last one-footed man <laughs> running an agency. <laughs> if you've ever seen the one-footed man, then you've seen me. <laughs> right. And, that, and that's the last you ever hear of Don Draper's mysterious admirer. Right. Yeah, it's, you know, we get the sense that Don is kind of a celebrity within this world, right? That he's like, he's considered the best of the best. Uh, sort of an ad man's ad man, right? 
Right, and so like, in the way that Young Jeezy is your favorite rapper's favorite rapper, uh, you know, Don uh, Don Draper's your favorite ad yeah, or like, favorite ad or that, like an actor like Cherry Jones or something like that, right? Is like an actor's actor, or Liev Schreiber or something like that, right? Like, you know, is an actor's actor. Kevin Spacey, maybe, right? He's the ad man's ad man. Ad man, yeah. mad men, ad men, mad men, ad men. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Well, yeah. I, I, like Matt, I don't think you can match the lawnmower in terms of sheer audaciousness. I think I can. <laughs> I think I can. Okay. Here's Ryan Sheely <laughs> coming from behind. Season three, episode three, uh, which is the Roger Sterling's um, Kentucky Derby party. Um, uh, episode, oh, yeah. and there is a there is a uh, coming right back from commercial. Uh, all you, you are hit with a close up of Roger Sterling in blackface, in full on blackface, singing. I'm not exactly which. Um, I forget exactly which like old kind of uh, spiritual he's singing. Something lines. along those yeah. lines. I mean, it, it is like oh, it one was, of the know most. It was because it was the title of the episode, wasn't it? It was my old Kentucky. Home. It was my old Kentucky and... home. Okay, yeah, no, you're right. And it is just, um, you know, it, I mean, it, it goes on extremely long. Um, and I think that, you know, just as the, the you know, while the, the lawnmower kind of has actual gore, you know, the, the, the blackface routine uh, sort of is filled with kind of social, socio-political gore um, and splatters all over uh, the faces of the viewers. Um, and it, it plays a really interesting role uh, within, within the episode of sort of showing, you know, developing this motif of how out of touch uh, Roger Sterling is and kind of, you know, and, and, and setting up this kind of litany of follies that, that is kind of the, that sets off the high part of his, his falling out with Don. And yeah. So I, I, I submit that is that's my, the episode you know, also, that's the episode where Don meets Conrad Hilton, though he's never introduced as, as Conrad Hilton at the time. Right. Exactly. And that episode also uh, features, um, a really uh, a, a really great uh, swing dancing scene with uh, with Pete and Trudy uh, as well. Um, that's that like you know you you prior to this episode you've seen their uh, their marriage as one that's kind of on the rocks and filled with tension and, and like you know all these uh, issues about like infertility and things like that. And there's just this moment where you know it's this three minute dance sequence where you, they kind of like grab the spotlight from everyone at the party. And you see, like, like why they are together. Like that, this is not a like spontaneous dance routine, but one that has been practiced for years and years and years. And it's just and the, the it, sort of desperation of it, right? The idea that the, that these these people are trying way too hard. Right. Well, I, don't know. See, I didn't see it like that. I didn't see it like that. I saw that it's that that this is something that they really share together. Um, see, I feel like there were other couples that were trying hard, and they just like rather than trying, um, just just kind of lost themselves in each other. I mean, maybe yes, they practiced, but I didn't see it as being like I I, I really read that as like the moment where they kind of rewired. W- like the dynamic of that relationship and, and sort of, you know, uh, for the rest of the season, they were much more of a, of a team. Um, yeah, you know, they, minus, had a, they had an alliance. They had like, a, yeah, yeah, sort of like the little, like the little Pete's little lapse with the German au pair. Um, oh, and here you come, here you come to my favorite moment. I was going to do the, 
<laughs> I swear so we didn't pervy, even, man. <laughs> we didn't even plan it like this. Yeah, with the nubile German au pair. Yeah, um, <laughs> I I was going to say, uh, well, hey, I do it's have. It's usually a, not referred to as nubile. They're not known for their litheness. No, it's true. The yeah. Germans. <laughs> yeah, the Germans are, are not known. They're a, for they're, their... a, they're a stocky, square-shouldered people. <laughs> they are. My my people actually. I'm one uh, one quarter German. Um, but, uh, okay, so I was going to go with uh, the gypsy and the hobo, the trick-or-treat moment at the end. when Like, who are you supposed to be? Yeah, the kids are dressed as the gypsy and the hobo. And then, uh, you know, and then whoever's house it is, he looks up at, at Don and, and Betty and says, and who are you supposed to be? And we, we are meant to realize that they are, in fact, the gypsy and the hobo uh, in, in a certain way. In a way. Uh, they are the gypsy and the hobo, but no, I want to go with. I, See, go I with, thought that was a, almost a little on the nose. I feel like that could have had the like you know the gag from the uh, Wayne's Brothers you know South Central movie where you know uh, Samuel L. Jackson pops up and goes message. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, I, that's why it's not mine, and I'm going to go with <laughs> with Pete nailing the German au pair uh, because it's a good choice, a strong choice. Well, then. here's here's why. The, to me, this. Oh, he serves as kind of a foil for Don, and I think Pete is is set up as a foil for Don in a lot of ways. Like Pete had a lot of things handed to him, right? Whereas Don kind of clawed his way up uh, from the stables, from well, the- <laughs> literally from the stables by the yeah. by the strength of his wits, and that like just in those those one or two crucial moments, the sink or swim moments, like when his sergeant was killed in the war. Uh, uh, was Second World War? No, Korea. It must have been Korea, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah so when his when his sergeant uh, was killed in Korea, and he had the the wherewithal to though though injured to switch the dog tags, right? He he rebranded himself, right? It was his, it was his first act as an as that's, an ad man was to, was to rebrand himself. Is, I mean, this is the thing. Like when he when Peggy corners him about it, do you remember his response? It's like Peggy, people. Change or you mean you mean Betty or you mean Betty? Betty, Betty. Not Peggy. Peggy doesn't know. Though, though, uh, I gotta say, it was last season where we saw Don and Peggy interacting around the pregnancy, and um, and what Don said was, I think, one of the greatest greatest lines in the show thus far. Uh, he looked at her and, uh, r- regarding the pregnancy, he said, "This never happened. It will astonish you how much this never happened." <laughs> and that was, I mean, that's a window, that's brilliant dialogue there, and that's a window into almost worthy of glee, I'd say. And, <laughs> and that's, sorry, sorry, Blink. And that's a window into, um, that's a window into Don's soul. But I think that, I think that the Pete with the German au pair is a window into Pete's soul and, and in, into the, the, the reasons that Pete can't be Don. You mm-hmm. know? Because Don operates with an air of, of sort of detachment, though, though there is a sense that he is drawn to a certain, he is drawn to a certain kind of woman, a woman who is, who is sort of outside the, um, outside the mainstream from his first, you know, Greenwich Village intellectual bohemian girlfriend, where we first encounter him, to uh, the Menken's heiress. Uh, to the teacher this season. They're all brunettes, right? Yeah, they're all right. Unlike Betty, they're all brunettes. And uh, or to the um, oh, what was the one with the oh uh, the uh, Bobby Barrett? Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Uh, and that, I mean, of of of, of crotch grab fame. That was my favorite uh, oh moment my of the episode of, of season two was the crotch grab. Um. <laughs> the crotch grab, where it's like, I I I want to tell you something. Yeah, I know. I I've been meaning to try that move out myself on just you know some <laughs> random women I interact with. Like, I want to tell you something, but I want to be very emphatic and make sure that you hear me. So I'm going to reach I, up I, your skirt, uh, execute the crotch grab, and then uh, you know, and then we can then we can talk. It'll work better if you use like one of like the lines from like Street Fighter, like you know, Sonic Boom. <laughs> Show it again. Well, what really make it work better is if you can be John Ham. I think that would help a lot. <laughs> Not even John Ham, because I hear just in the press and like through hearing people talk about him, I hear that he's actually a nice guy because that is a guy who was a waiter for like a decade. You know, for really? 15, yeah, for 15 years before uh, before he hit. Like, it's not like he decided to be an actor three years ago. The guy has been working his way up, you know, since he yeah. was before our age. And now, uh, you know, now he's, um, uh, I don't know how he is. I'm going to Wikipedia that very quickly. But he's not a, you know, he's not um, a super young guy anymore. Let's see. John Hamm, born 1971. Oh, so he's, he's, uh, just this, the math, just this side of 40. Okay. Wait, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Just this side of I read that he had auditioned for the, uh, Jack Donaghy role in 30 Rock. Um, hilariously. Uh, you mean like I'd when they weren't going to cast it with a celebrity when they yeah, when they, well, I, I guess I don't know. At some point early on, um, well, I guess I don't know if it was that they had like. Uh, I, I guess it wasn't written as much as it seems as if the part it was were written, written with Alec Baldwin. Baldwin in mind. It was actually like an open casting. Um, and yeah, so um, so here's here's from the Wikipedia thing. Uh, born in St. Louis, Missouri, 1971. Moved in the mid 90s to Los Angeles, and this is uh, this is. Um, uh, a quote from Wikipedia, quote, struggled as an unemployed actor in the mid-1990s. Uh, he was represented by William Morris. Well, I'm sure he wasn't represented by freaking William Morris right away. He's probably represented by William Morris now. Anyway, so 2000, <laughs> uh, Space Cowboys, uh, Young Pilot it, number two. Was he at Sp- oh, okay. Uh, so he was a, he was a yeah, as a nobody. I, like, I happen to like Space Cowboys. Um, he... Uh, Let's see. Okay, Providence, uh, the Hughleys, uh, Gilmore Girls, CSI Miami, Charmed, the unit. So, oh, like it's small things. Guess, well, yeah, doing guest star and maybe like – these look like guest stars. They don't look like co-stars to me. Um, but then, okay, so that – oh, the Sarah Silverman program as a cable guy. But then started <laughs> – in 2007, started playing Don Draper and the, uh, the rest is history. Um, he the thing won. is, do you see him being able to branch out to other roles? I mean, is, is this one of these cases where he sort of inhabits this role so well that, like, anytime we see him, like, with hair that's not, like, slicked over and, you know, in, in, the, in the fly suit, you know, that, that it's just not going to seem right? Or well, do you I think, think that this, this is going mean, to be a springboard? This is a, case, this is a case, I think, of a role finding an actor that he is just perfect for. Yeah, you know, yeah. that he like. But I, I'd say he could do more than that. Did you guys uh, watch Thirty Rock yeah, last he, season? He, he, yeah, he was that's great. That's where I was about to go. Yeah, he yeah was and, and he wasn't Dodge, he wasn't Dodge Draper at all. So I mean, I definitely think that he has more range than to be like a handsome, mysterious man. Yeah, this 60s. is a guy. This is not a one-hit wonder. I mean, this is a guy who who spent many years working his way up, 
And so and he was he was great when he was on when he hosted SNL. He was hilarious, also. Yeah. Um, and there were a few Mad Men sketches, but there was also the uh, the uh, John Ham's John Ham, the, uh, <laughs> the, the the country roasted ham that you eat on the toilet. And he just he's, he really owned it. Um. <laughs> yeah, that was that was pretty fantastic. Okay, so good, John John Ham. Um, John Ham, John Ham's John Ham. Uh, season finale. What do, uh, what do we think? I mean, what struck me about it is how action packed it's, how quickly it seemed to move compared with the show normally, right, which, which is usually very deliberately paced. Pace. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, and that, that's sort of my issue with Mad Men that I, I like it a lot. I always sort of, and I felt the same way about The Sopranos that you always sort of expect things to happen quicker than they actually do and I think that's part of the show's that that's part of the game that the show is playing that it's always sort of teasing things and then pulling back. I think the lawnmower thing I almost feel like the writers were making an inside joke that they're sort of set something up and then they're like but no it doesn't happen this way. It happens in a different way that you can't see coming. Well right that's, that's, that's an interesting thing. I mean I think a, a, a different from a show like Oh God! What's a show that we all that we all like that I can reference? What about the Gosh, unit? Well, Glee. <laughs> what about the unit? Or what about? Um, do you guys ever see Burn Notice? That's a show that lives or dies on its plot, right? And, right. And like that, that each episode's going to tell like a real story, and like something's going to be revealed. And... Or that it, it's it's not that Mad Men doesn't tell a story; it's just a different kind of story that it tells, right? It it's, meanders. Yeah, it's a it's contemplative rather than being rather than being extremely goal-directed narrative. Well, I think it's, a, it's a, I think what the season finale kind of proves or hammers, reinforces is that it sort of moves in this kind of um, kind of punctuated evolutionary biologists call like punctuated equilibria, right? So there's a lot of drift and then things like there are like transformative moments, right? And it's kind, kind of, of all of a sudden, everything happens. Right, and I think that, you know, I mean that and, and this is sort of, you know, it happens at the micro level, like within the lives of the of the characters, but it then is echoed in what's going on historically, right? So that there are these social changes that are happening, but, you know, there's still these focal, big historical moments that are focal points. The Kennedy assassination, uh, last season, season finale was uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, before that was like the uh, Kennedy-Nixon election, right? So that there are these kinds of, you know, there's, there's history is like a big slow moving glacier, but then there is like also, you know, someone firing rockets at the glacier at un- like unpredictable intervals and just huge, you know, shards just fly off. And so, and, and it's an interesting view of kind of history and it's, and it's reflected in, in the lives of the characters as well. I want to do a little, I want to do a little overthinking here. Uh, uh, Gerard Ginette, right. Um, uh, wrote a, um, wrote a study called, uh, oh, God, what was it called? Palimpsest, right? Uh, Dedicated to forms of second-degree narrative. Uh, That is to say, he distinguished between what he called reci, or the the, uh, telling uh, of the story, and discours, which was a kind of meditation on the story, which became a feature of uh, of the, the modern novel. Right. That is to that is to say, like with with I guess Joyce, the idea of the novel contemplating its own process uh, enters the um, uh, enters the literary 
uh, enters the literary sphere and actually has kind of taken literary fiction and has really been in that ever since. And and very goal directed narratives are uh, these days are tend to be relegated to to genre fiction like mystery fiction or romance or you know things that are narratologically. Um, uh, uh, shall we say unreflective about their or like, own? Uh, yeah, like like a procedural. Yes, you know, exactly. Any of these, like, let's solve a mystery type thing, right? Uh, and so that really dominates TV nowadays. I think most of TV is that, like, you know, we have the the attractive corpse of the week. Yeah, well, that's. I mean, let's ring the change. Let's ring the changes on this, right? Like, started with Law and Order, which, which I mean, Law and Order was revolutionary for its time because Law and Order came about in the midst of, um, you know, in the midst of the television landscape that Dallas left in its wake, right? And that that these soap operas were the norm, right? Uh, huh. and, and even. Uh, even like half hour shows, even a show, I mean, not all the half hour shows, but a show like Night Court, you know, which had some kind of uh, uh, the serialization to it. It was not strictly episodic. And so Law and Order was revolutionary at the time because of, because of the uh, austere focus on procedure and um, because of the total rejection of any of the narrative crutches uh, that television writing, and I would say a lot of lazy television writing, uh, uses like you never hear a guy in Law and Order say Law and Order. You never hear a guy in Law and Order say, um, uh, you know, the time I knew I wanted to become a cop was when I was. Uh, no, well, that that's Law and Order SVU that you're talking they about. Do, yeah, they do get in. SVU has gotten into that. Um, it's a little more touchy feely. No, no pun intended. Oh God, I made a horrible. <laughs> Like a rape pun. That's that's yeah. not that's not cool at all. That was the most popular show in America. But now you know. Now we have shows like um, uh, NCIS, all the CSIs, um, that uh, a couple of lawyer ones, things like this. And then like, and then there are the shows like Criminal Minds. I don't know if you've ever seen Criminal Minds. That kind of they're, they're, they're kind profilers. Of, and... Yeah, they're the profilers, but they kind of blur. Um, they kind of blur the distinction. Does the does the mentalist fall into that category as well, or? Well, isn't um, she? I mean, aren't the mentalist? The, the mentalist is a dude, right? No, I think Psych is a dude. I thought the mentalist was. Uh, was no, the, a woman. the mentalist is what Simon Baker. Or... Oh, the mentalist yeah. is a dude, and he's a fake psychic. And then on Psych, he's a fake psychic. No, I think he's he's not a he's just smart. I don't know. Maybe he's a real psychic. The, all the all the all the TBS shows are like. Quirky guy solves mystery, right? But that's USA, right? Like, is that USA? Well, yeah. yeah. USA is the shows. home of Psych Monk, Monk too. Burn Notice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they they're really trying to brand themselves as like late comedic mystery solving. Well, that's and that and also sort of sort of centered around a, a one central character in a in a sort of Shakespearean way. Right, right. Somebody you could put on the poster. Exactly. Then, whereas, whereas a show not to uh, not to to beat this dead horse. Whereas a show like The Wire uh, is about. Um, whereas a show a show like okay. The Wire is about society, uh, and actually Mad Men uh, is about a society. Is a nineteenth century novel, not a Shakespeare play. And actually, this is is like um, oh god, what did Balzac call his? His grand project that encompassed all his novels. I uh, remember what you're talking uh, about. La, la Comédie Humaine or something. I, I'm sorry for my terrible French right. pronunciation. It's like 180 novels that yeah. sort of all interact in vague ways. The, hu- the human comedy. That is, the idea was to encompass this whole thing. Dickens had the same thing mm-hmm. with, with like a, a kind of uh, social naturalism. And... 
and uh, and Tolstoy. You know, Tolstoy took it, I think, as far as far as you you possibly could, uh, to the point where to the point where you have someone like Joyce turning to discord, turning to other things, you know, because you can't do more. You can't do more with that than Tolstoy or Dickens did. So Joyce had to go somewhere else anyway. Sorry. My point is that Mad Men seems to straddle this divide. And I think this is one of the things that makes it such an interesting and such a compelling show. Uh, for overthinking, right? Because it is definitely Shakespearean in that it is centered around a strong, enigmatic, compelling uh, central character uh, who, uh, with whom we rise and fall. But it's also the portrait of a society, you know? Yeah. And that, I mean, it's very much about like a time and a place. And that More you time, see, but also a place. And that these people in it tend to represent. This is a huge achievement, I think, that they're they're well drawn as characters, but they also tend to represent social groups, uh, and where where the characters represent sort of social groups or movements. So you have the gay dude, you have the woman entering the workplace, you have the black guy in the elevator, then the black maid, uh, the domestic worker, the black right, the black domestic worker, which is like, oh God, it was you know. Turn off that business about uh, Martin Luther King getting right. shot or something. You know, turn that turn that radio. Oh, no, you can leave. He says you can leave your program on if you want. Um, yeah. You know, uh, or like the maid. You know, I, I mean, the maid's reaction to to the Kennedy assassination was great. But then, okay, so like frustrated housewife, uh, the two like beatnik writers that they hire. Uh, copywriters, uh, the or the what I guess is a copywriter, and the other is an art guy, um, right? Th- that they hire at the agency to get that you know that um, that youthful thing in uh, Joan, you know, and what what she represents. Um, and I wonder if the this, this new character uh, that that the the man that Betty is involved with now he's a politician, and they haven't done a ton with that yet. But I wonder if like they're going to bring in more of that world of like this sort of old timey machine politics. Sure. I mean, they could go two ways. They could develop that, or they could like write him out. They could uh, write and, Betty and, you know, out too. They could write Betty out. I mean, this is something. I don't know if they, been... I mean, I don't know if they would. I mean, they they could. I I I would hate to predict. I mean, I I at the end of last season, I actually made like an informal prediction to some of my friends that this season was going to be about Pete was going to be obsessed with trying to find out what happened to the kid he had. Um, you know, and didn't happen at all. You know, it's like it's like it, it never happened. They they went in an entirely different direction. You'll so be I, astonished yeah. how much it never happened. Right, I mean, the, the last we saw Pete last season is he was completely devastated by this revelation that he had a child and was given up for adoption. And we see him sitting alone in his office holding a shotgun. And it's like, wow, what is he going to do? How is he going to deal with this information? And the answer is he just, he just moves on. And it's just something that's that's in the background. Probably yeah, that's the answer. I mean, it's never. Well, it does. It bubbles up when when Duck tries to uh, to to court both Pete and uh, Peggy to come to to Gray or whatever his, the firm is that he's at now. You know, Pete really recoils because he's being asked to come as like a package deal with with Peggy, and like really, yeah. you know, really freaks out. I wonder now um, that I wonder now that Peggy is stooping Duck. I wonder what the. Um, I wonder what the, it's going to be. I wonder what the uh, the uh, result on Don's new agency is going to be. 
Well, uh, what do you mean? Like if it'll be successful? No, I mean, I wonder if there's any effect on. Uh, oh, like like Peggy's relationship with Duck. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if they're if they're going to drop that. I think she's t- has totally outgrown him. I mean, I think that I I think that for Peggy, Duck is a is a proxy for Don. Yeah, I think so too. And and you, you could almost see the moment where he hides the Kennedy assassination from her to have sex, and she realizes it as sort of like without having said anything, they're sort of broken up. That like she she's not going to do this anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like a sub moment. The the thing is, here's I'd like to ask a question to the panel. Um, I find it very interesting to to sort of compare and contrast the show with The Sopranos, because obviously there's sure. there, the, the show I think is is the sort of heir to The Sopranos, their sort of style of storytelling. Well, there's all, and there's also Weiner, a lineage, right? Like Weiner, you know. Well, yeah, that, no, that's that's what I was saying. That like this. this I, is just, the, I haven't watched the The Sopranos, so I haven't. Well, you haven't watched any it. of it. No, I mean, I, it's, it's been on my list for a while. Especially, maybe I'll I'll watch it between now and you know the next the next season of, of Mad Men. I, I mean, there my, are there are a lot of similarities. In that you know, there's there's a strong central character, but there's also a large uh, array of supporting cast members. You know, some of which have uh, plot lines that the the central character never even knows about. You know, so the show is sort of trying to depict a society in a whole circle, but it always comes back to this one well, guy. A, who's always not, a, not a society. I'd say a circle, not a whole society. That's not. Yeah, a, I mean, I guess, yeah, the Sopranos it's a is about culture, right? Like, Although, I mean, the last episode right. is called Made in America, and I feel like it, it aspires to say something larger about our culture, but it does seem to be very much of, like, you know, a particular region of the country. And Whereas Mad Men is about mainstream American culture. I mean, it's about, it's about the whole of America. Well, it's about, I mean, it's especially from this thesis America that, like, American culture, American popular culture originates from and is reverberated through New York, right? So it's the New York as the kind of cultural capital of America. Yeah, but it's America. also, you know, look, they, they go to California and Palm Springs, and that Palm Springs in the 60s stuff was fantastic. Like, those yeah. low... Those low ranch houses with all the horizontal lines and the kind of indoor outdoor spaces that was fantastic and uh, you know what the meaning of the meaning of Los Angeles and Hollywood and and, and uh, this they come out for like an aerospace conference mm-hmm. right which is you know like people don 't realize they think it 's all movies like that was for a long time california 's big industry was building building airplanes um, mm. the d c three was built in in uh, Actually, not far from the house I grew up in, uh, but um, but then also like the meaning of rural America uh, in the form of Don's roots, I think mm. is is taken up. So I think it's a more I think it's a more comprehensive picture than just being a, a sort of New York centric kind of New York snob uh, elite. You, but you didn't feel that even when they went to New York or and it went to L.A., it was uh, you know mostly defined in opposition. To, uh, to to New York, just kind of like the Sex in the City, where Carrie goes out to L.A. and it's all about how it's like totally different, and she like sleeps with Vince Vaughn or something. How like that. How it's like totally different. Yeah, no. Uh, uh, let me tell you, uh, since I'm podcasting from there now, L.A. is like totally different from New York. <laughs> For why example, do you overthink everything I say? Why can't you just why can't you just let me say things? <laughs> uh, <for laughs> why example, don't you just have a conversation? <laughs> today in Los Angeles, it was 75 degrees. Uh, how how warm was it in in the New York, Blinky? It was actually I was actually really bad. warm. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I know. I know you took a good guess that that it would be cold, but you just but in your you face. <laughs> yeah, no, but yeah. I mean, it'll be cold tomorrow if that makes you feel any better. Well, there you go. It to- 
It totally does because it will be warm here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, all right. Then I guess you win, right? Uh, Sorry, you were saying before I, I broke it, we were talking about America. Uh, the Blinky, you were talking about The Sopranos. You had a, a question right. for the panel that we well, never I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, and I think that the style of storytelling certainly reminds me of The Sopranos in that, like, various things are introduced. Uh, and The Sopranos, I, I don't, I'm not going to give away anything specific, Sheely, but... You know, especially Feel free. The, I have spoiled so many things for so many people that uh... it always seems in The Sopranos that there's going to be a mob war in the next episode. That like there's always the threat that like this is where it all goes down. And I think a large part of it is that HBO is very good at editing uh, promos for The Sopranos, uh, often featuring uh, percussive drums that make it seem like this next episode is going to be like nonstop gunfights. Uh, and then, um, this is it, it. And it never, yeah, it's like, you know, you were only eight episodes left this season. Uh, and it never is quite as apocalyptic as you somehow believe it'll be that like the mob war never quite happens or never quite happens when you expect it to happen. Um, I mean, a good example is, uh, the character of Polly. I think, you know, even from, like, you know, season two, they're sort of teasing that maybe he's not entirely happy working from Tony. Maybe he's a little dissatisfied. Maybe he could be lured away. Maybe he's not always going to be totally loyal. Um, and nothing ever comes of it, as far as I can remember. That, like, they... That stays on the back burner forever. Um, and, I mean, in a way, it seems sort of disappointing to sort of, like, put this out there and to spend all these this narrative effort uh, creating these little moments where you see that this guy is – there's this tension and then never really pay off the tension. But I guess the other argument is that's how life is, that, like, you know, maybe he's not entirely happy, but that doesn't mean that, like, he's going to straight up betray Tony because, you know, that's – that that would that would be too um, you know uh, cookie cutter for a show that's as nuanced as The Sopranos, you know. Was there a question in there that we were supposed to? Answer? I don't know. I, I guess the, the, the question was I was I was curious what you guys what what you guys would say is the big difference between it. I think we've laid out one very well, which is that the um, um, Mad Men is more about America in general. You know, that, that you look back when people respond to the Kennedy assassination, you don't get the feeling that like, oh, well, this is how like one particular group of people in New York City responded to the Kennedy assassination. You feel like this is sort of like representative of how like various people in the whole country responded. Yes. I mean, right. Like, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that we get like uh, and do you notice that it's the young people who take it a lot harder it's the young people and the uh, the African American community, right, who take it a lot harder. Like Roger still has the wedding, Don and Betty still go to the wedding, but um, uh, Trudy and Pete stay home. You know, but that's personal, also, right? Like um, Pete didn't want to go because he learned that he hadn't gotten the promotion, right? Um, and, 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 and Kennedy was just an excuse, right? Why do you think they went with Pete and not with? Uh, what do you think they went with Pete and not with Ken Cosgrove? To make it more plausible that then Pete, because they want Pete to be in the the Sterling Cooper Draper. Yes, because Pete's firm. a more interesting character. It's like the writers like to write Pete more. 
Well, it's I mean, true. I, I, I agree with you that it's curious. Pete, and, 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 and he is well acted too. Like that little dance that he did in the first season when he got he got some kind of uh, some kind of good thing happened at work and and he closed his office door and did a little dance. That was fantastic. And, and of course, I don't think Sterling and Draper ever deny that they also ask Ken. I think that's the first question Pete asked them. I think they said we're also asking Ken, but that doesn't mean we don't want no, you. No, they to. said they uh-huh. said not yet. Have you asked Ken? Oh, they said not. So they they did say that. They just him. left the door open to be like, listen, you you don't have a lot of time to like play hardball with us. Like we're ready to go to Ken if you if you say if you say no. Right, although they they do actually go to a bar afterwards and sort of like say snide things about Pete. So it's it's not entirely clear that they're huge Pete fans. Well, right, so yeah, I, yeah. The, I'm, I mean, the idea being that like this was necessary. They had to, right. uh, they had to sweet talk him uh, in well, order to get the 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 uh, to in order to get the the agency going. I mean, that was like the interesting thing about this episode is that it was like a series of like like Don kind of eating crow and like basically he said like I I was wrong like so many times like you know and. Basically, you know, people need like on the flip side though, all the you know successive stream people need to be kind of like you know have the open validation from Don Rogers. Like you know, no, tell me, you know, tell me why you, you need me. And uh, Pete says, you like, know, no, I want to hear from you why I'm special. And and, and then Peggy and then he says, goes and gives the big speech to Peggy, right? Right, and and the only person he doesn't like really do this to is, is Betty. You know, I mean, what, no, what's his no, pitch for I mean, Betty? Oh, you're a that, whore. <laughs> do you, but that last, I think that that last, I you know, I read some stuff online where the the takeaway was, well, this is Don finally growing up, right? Finally, sort of like making his peace with. Uh, instead of running away, kind of doing what he has to do to kind of k- keep people together and, and and keep going. And I'd say that that last, the equivalent for Betty is that last phone call uh, when he's in the bedroom of the hotel suite, which is serving as the Sterling Cooper Draper Price office, um, uh, where it's uh, he says, you know, you know what, you're going to get everything you want. You know? Yeah, I, but I think there's like there's also a little bit of passion in that also. Or, right? or like, yeah, or like I'm not going to fight you. I hope you find, I hope you find what you're looking for, so that like right. he's in fact not going to go to war for the kids or try to uh, keep, uh, you know, try to um, I don't know, take all the money. You know, you won't get a cent, kind of thing. I, th- I think there was an interesting moment in that phone call where he says, you know, oh, for a while I'm going to be working out of the uh, out of the Pierre. And she doesn't even ask why. Like, you know, she doesn't right, say like, well, like, what did, did the building burn down? Like, like the agency, yeah. Well, and she's and here what she says, and this was also something that was pointed out to me, I think, on Salon. She says, "You'll always be their father." And have you noticed how Peggy is kind of obsessed with these? Betty, God, I keep making that freaking mistake. Uh, Betty says you're you're you'll always be that father, their their father, right? She's obsessed with the uh, with the father figures, right? Where like her own father, uh, Don is a kind of paterfamilias, you know, father figure, and then Don, you'll always be there, uh, you'll always be their father. Um, 
I and, well, and 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 in the scene with the divorce lawyer, I mean, this, the Henry guy really you know plays plays the father too, right? I mean, it's it's she she kind of really enjoys the like the the you know sort of having someone take charge and kind of it's 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 an, it's hard to say what it is that she you know they talk about what she always really wants without really defining that clearly, and it's yeah. like it I don't know. Although, although, I mean, yeah, she likes having someone take charge, but I definitely feel like it's an open question whether she cares at all about this new guy. That remember that she asked earlier in the season about getting a divorce, and the advice from the guy is that like you you can't financially you can't do this, and then this guy offers to marry her. So the question is, does she really love this guy and want to start a new life from him, or is this just her way out and she's taking it and she's? Oh, I don't know, but she she also had him kind of set up as a romantic ideal. I mean, because they had been. You know, you know, he was kind of, I mean, from like episode three, you know, in episode three, she met him at the derby party and he kind of creepily felt up her stomach um, and then had this like pen pal romance with him. So I think that she has had this kind of like romantic, you know, this idealized romantic uh, relationship with him. It's kind of, you know, which is symbolized by the, the fainting couch that right. she purchases, the Victorian yeah, yeah. fainting couch. Oh, yeah, that is, is like totally... overstuffed romanticism, right? Well, and, that, and it's totally out of place with the modern furniture that, you know, that room gets redecorated. And the decorator washes her hands of it. Right, well, exactly. And that, like... She's um, like, I don't want my name on this job. <laughs> yeah. It's that horrible. Well, uh, which I mean, such a you know a symbol of like how you know she doesn't her life doesn't mesh with the home that they're building together and blah, or that you know she does it on purpose to mess up the room that she's making for Don. I don't know. I mean, there's there's a lot that you could read into it if you want to read into it. The thing that he is, you know, is kind of attentive and reverent, whereas Don tends to treat her with benign or not so benign neglect. Right, so something between neglect and contempt. Right? <laughs> yeah. He, yeah, he lives on the on the continuum between benign neglect and uh, contemptuous neglect. I mean, there's a fat, like the the confrontation in the. I mean, a lot of their confrontations over the last several episodes have they've just been so taut and well well done. And this one where he shoves her out of bed and and calls her a whore, and it was like really striking because you know it, like just as she's obsessed with fathers, he's obsessed with whore. I mean, his mother was a whore, right? Um, yeah, and literally. Um, and so I and think it, and then she takes up the baby right afterwards to to sort of like you know, yeah, if you don't get the picture. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, mothers, whores, they're all the same. And he's a whore, right? He's a, he's a corporate whore. Oh, um, he's absolutely a whore. Right. Well, yeah, it takes one to know one, I guess, right? When he, yeah. when he calls her that. Well, I know, even, you know like, what really struck me about the, the, the way the episode ended is that uh, Betty goes off to Reno for how long? Like five weeks or six weeks? Six, six weeks. And... Um, and then, meanwhile, Don is living in an apartment by himself, and the kids are presumably home for six weeks alone, just with the nanny. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, like, like think about, you know, and I mean, they both, they, they give this, and it was a really touching scene when they tell the kids that they're getting a divorce. And you could tell both the parents are sort of broken up about it. But at the same time, she goes up to have, and presumably... The 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 I keep forgetting the her new man's name. What is that guy's name? Henry Henry yeah. Francis. Presumably, I, I'd say Henry is with her for some of the time, and she's probably having like a luxury vacation off there in Reno, paid for by Henry. And you know, uh, Don is is having his new bachelor pad, and the kids really are uh, abandoned. 
I mean, I guess this is the question: is that do you want to? Is the tendency to kind of blame this on both of them, or because I kind of my inclination um, is is like for like my I read that like my first gut reaction was like, oh man, she is such a horrible mother, and um, and you know the way that you you laid it out, it's like yes, well, but Don is staying away, but then I would answer, well, she's the one that you know, like the what the striking thing about the where they tell the kids. Him out of the house. She kicks him out and like basically lets him take all of the heat. Like the awful scene where the kids are like breaking up. She's like just you know saying nothing and 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 really just. I mean, obviously, how you tell small small kids about divorce is is a super complicated situation. But you know, she could have met him halfway. I mean, she pretty much right. hung him out right. to dry. He's, he's on just that. like, oh well, well, it's just for now. And she sort of shakes her head like, no, no, no. Right, right, but she's not doing anything else to like help with the kinds of small, like you know, in other depictions of this, you know, it's at least a team effort, and she's just like, you know, like he's trying to like comfort the kids and not make them less upset, but she's not going to do anything to help him out. You know, she's not going to exactly. tell any he's lies. All, all she's not going to tell the truth either. Like, and of course, the but the older daughter is sort of blaming her, so it's it's interesting. Uh, I mean, like how that how that plays out next season. Well, it's so yeah. I, I mean, it's well, the relationship with the kids is is going to be interesting. I was actually thinking they spend all this time with the the daughter, but nothing really with the with the son. And maybe it's because the son is too young to kind it's of a little be, bit of a cipher. Yeah. yeah to well, be, also, this is the third actor that's played the 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 son uh, over oh, the course so? of the series. They've changed. I think they've changed him up every season. Um, and well, so we're keep, yeah, they keep shifting. They keep shifting time and like. But I think they've had the same actor actress play. Um, I guess again because the the son is younger when the season st- the show starts. Yeah, it's also so. I mean, kids are so specific uh, uh, early on in life. Kids are so specific as far as what age they are. Yeah, mm-hmm. what but age? The, the, the child actor who plays. I mean, I hope they keep Sally because I think she's great. I think she was awesome this season and like you know had a lot of this you know sadness, anger. You know, I mean, she, in some ways, a lot of ways was kind of. Like more emotionally complex than her mother, right? Who is often like in denial. Um, you know, there's this interesting. Kind yeah. Of- yeah. There, there's a lot of Dawn in her. Yeah, you know the the daughter and like their mutual hatred of of Betty's father. <laughs> yeah. Well, wait, wait. Did the daughter hate Betty's father? I mean, I think that she. No, no. Up- the- she really liked the, oh, the father. Yeah, no, the, I think yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. That, the, that the daughter kind of forged this unlikely alliance across the generations where they, they, seem, to, uh, they seem to bond over something. I mean, maybe kind of over kind of being out of place in this house or, or uh, you know, being out of place in the world, maybe. Being disre- kind of disrespected uh, and written off by Betty, um, sure. I think. Um, I don't know. I mean, just out of curiosity, at the end of the 60s, um, she'll be, what, graduating high school, the oldest daughter? I guess so. Was she in, like, just, fourth or fifth grade or just something? Just, like, t- taking sort of a long shot. I don't know. She's, like, 11. Just taking sort of a long shot. you you got to figure, like, in the, the, the maybe the long game for this series as you go through, like, 1969. I don't. I don't know if I'm, I'm going way out on a limb there, but I mean, it's very much a series like about the '60s. They enjoy walking through the store. What you know, the um, the uh, uh, Matthew Weiner said that the story of Mad Men is, of Mad Men is the story of 
a subversive ethnic sensibility coming to undermine the kind of mainstream waspy sensibility. Right. By, by the end of the decade, the counterculture is the culture. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you put it better. And, and, that, so, and that, like, that like advertising is dominated by these anti-establishment message. That, which like, is what, everyone, which yeah. is what I think was, was represented by the Volkswagen ad, uh, the lemon ad that was in season one, I think, right? That, uh, where it's that, do you remember that? Don's on the train, he's reading the newspaper, there's an ad for Volkswagen, the, the headline of the copy is lemon. Uh, you know the the idea being kind of bragging that the car is a lemon in some in some way, and apparently that's a famous advertisement. The typeface is Futura, uh, so it's a you know it's a kind of Sansera. Yeah, like. it's a uh, it's a Sansera, right? Um, like European uh, sort of typeface, and yeah, the story of this this counterculture. Uh, which is which is largely ethnic, right? Or the gay culture, or the women entering the workplace, coming to displace the uh, the Sterlings and the Coopers of the world. Right, it's the, the stodgy, the stodgy old white men. You know what? I didn't the- understand that uh, Sterling had inherited the business from his father, but it makes sense because he, Roger, and Bert are of two totally different generations. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, so that so that makes sense, and it's you know like he inherited the business. He's at the top of the thing through you know through a kind of through inheritance, and not through having scraped up the way the way Don did, the way Peggy is doing. You know, I wonder if they bring Sal back just because I want Sal back because I think he's a great character. I think that actor is fantastic. Yeah. It's but- tough though because because the 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 account that that got him fired is the uh, is the, oh, lucky, the lucky strike account, yeah, and that's the so that's their account. you know that's their lifeblood, right? That's their their main account. Yeah, so- that's, that's thirty million dollars of their forty million dollars in annual billings, right? Yeah. Right. So, but I mean, they're not going to write him out. I mean, right? Because like the sort of you know the, the the sort of gay subculture. You know it doesn't go away throughout the rest of the '60s, and you know he's a kind of a beloved character. So they're gonna. I mean, it's again, it's hard to as much as you want to kind of forecast and predict, especially because we have you know what like nine, ten months to go before the next season. Um, it's it's really hard. Uh, I think like like Matt was saying earlier, it's 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 pretty much impossible. Uh, you know, you just gotta kind of trust in them. I don't think they're gonna write this character off because he, well, he was me, far let, from the character. Let me ask a character. basic question, and I know that we have no basis to answer this. When they pick up the show, will they still be working out of that hotel room, or will it be two years later and they'll have an office of their Maybe own? Maybe not two years later. I don't think two years later. I think they'll have an office that is a much humbler office than Sterling Cooper. But they, it will be in the exact same place. A little time will have elapsed. A, a little time will have elapsed to get the agency at least functioning in some kind of day-to-day normalcy. That's my I prediction. Would, I would say, let's see, when was when was the Gulf of Tonkin? Um, I think, I, I think <laughs> like, no, no, because so I think, from, right. We go from Cuban Missile Crisis to the assassination of President Kennedy to the Gulf of Tonkin. Okay. No, because, like, this is going to be. 
be big because right, like I like this is like I, I here's one prediction I feel reasonably solid of like you know the one thing that um the last that we saw of uh, Jones' husband, uh, Doctor McRapey, um is is <laughs> that he goes you know oh I got a job in the army and she's like well where, yes. where will they send you he's like oh, like oh you know I'll somewhere maybe Vietnam if that's still going on and so you know this I, guy is dying in Vietnam. By like, the way, I kind of I really hate those moments. By the way. Where they're, they're like they're like very wink nick wink wink nudge nudge. Yeah. Like, you know. Well, it's uh, I, it's difficult because how did people how did people actually talk about those things at the time? I mean, I, I, I guess, but it just it sort of takes me out of the show, and it makes me realize that like the show is being written with the benefit of hindsight, um, and I I just feel like it's breaking the fourth wall a little bit. Or at least at least it does that for me. You know what, Matt? I'm actually going to disagree with you about the jump in time. Okay. Um, well, it's, I feel it's like not, I feel it's like, not necessarily disagreeing. I mean, I pulled that out of my ass. I, I don't know how many seasons Matt Weiner visualizes the show going, but I feel like he wants to take it all the way through the '60s, and so they need mm-hmm. to skip a couple of years here and there. And I could see them being like, now that the couple's broken up, that like you know, um, Betty and Henry are married and they have their a house of their own, and that Don's been single and has been like you know sleeping with a sequence. I don't know. I I could see that this is a good point to skip ahead and have you know. Not really tell the story about how this new agency gets on their feet, you know, but I, I don't know. I, I could see them skipping ahead to like 1966. Where are they now? 64? So that's. No, they're, they're just at the end of 63. They're at right, Christmas 1963. Yeah, right. I, I could see them skipping ahead to 65, 66 for next year. Yeah, I think so. November. Yeah. Um, okay, Golf so then we're skipping. Golf of Tonkin is August 1964. Oh, you're on so... the same Wikipedia page I'm on. So okay, yeah. what can we do in? I mean, what can we do in? What can we do in '66? I mean, you could just have it. It's more like you know. I don't know. I mean, I, I'd have to. I'd have to. I'm unprepared for this Wikipedia wise, but I just. I, I just want there to be more hippies in the show. Is basically what I'm saying. Uh-huh. Um, you know, hippies. You know, it's interesting, right? Like we are. Uh, we're. I think we've only really ended just now ended the fifties on Mad Men, right? Like the fifties mm. culturally are a period that stretched almost twenty years from the end of the Second World War through uh, either through depending on whether you want to date it politically or culturally, either through the assassination of President Kennedy or else through the Beatles' appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show, right? Which when was that, by the way? Oh, Beatlemania. Someone, someone, uh, someone, Wikipedia that while, while I talk, and that, because like, that and that the um, the uh, the fifties as a as a sort of cultural. I think period. that was sixty four, but I could be wrong. So about, I mean, okay, so about the same time. So right, and that that um, this eighteen year period, eighteen or nineteen year period. Uh, is what culturally we can refer to as the 50s as a as a time of sort of economic expansion uh limitless american possibility sort of american so, american dominance of foreign policy and of uh you know uh uh the global economy uh, d- uh dwight eisenhower this this stuff. Everything Wait, is, so why does the Beatles' appearance mark the end of that? Because it's well, if you want to, if you want to date it culturally, because once the Beatles kind of came to America, it's, it's uh, youth culture. You know, like youth, like like from then on, like the Hillary Duffs dominate. You know, popular well, culture. Youth culture. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think they're I think they're better than Hillary Duff, though. Hillary Duff's doing a, a pretty serviceable job on right. Gossip Girl. I gotta say. Um, oh, my point man. is, well, I mean, oh, I, I guess, man. I guess, you know, I mean, I guess Elvis does 
predate the Beatles. I haven't like, seen tonight's episode, like, Ryan. Don't spoil it for me. Yeah. Makeouts. Copious <laughs> makeouts. Wow. The, what, I, just when I thought TV couldn't top the Mad Men season finale, Gossip Girl <laughs> went and just outdid itself. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> um, right. So that, like, after that, and after that, it's also the story. The Beatles is when black music, right, rock and roll, which was black music, uh, crosses over and becomes white music. No, but that, that's the thing is that 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 happened. That happened before. I mean, the yeah, but that, it, that, it, it that happened in the, the advertising world. Like Sterling uh, Cooper doesn't use rock and roll to sell products yet. You know, hmm. but they will by the end of the decade. They have to. But this is like an interesting thing, is because you then get they a use series by, of- by Birdie. I guess so. But Bye Bye Birdie, isn't Bye Bye Birdie about, like, a rock star? Isn't Conrad Birdie supposed to be an Elvis but, but kind Bye of Bye, figure? Bye Bye Birdie is sort of, like, rolling its eyes at rock and roll. Huh. You know, it's like it's like a very cartoonish portrayal of, I mean, there's nothing rock and roll about Bye Bye Birdie. But I guess there's an interesting thing coming, right? So it's that, because if they do adopt kind of rock culture, youth, you know, sort of youth culture, um, you know, because you sort of get the Beatles early period in 64, which is like this British invasion, pop rock. And then by like 67 or so, you're at Sgt. Pepper's, right? You're at full-blown psychedelia. Well, this um, is, and yeah, so, I, guess, I mean, I guess I really, I was a little premature about that culture. Right, because like when like, the Beatles came, like the Beatles first three or four albums, um, they were playing, they were playing covers of American rock songs. You know, they were playing, and also, they were playing money, uh, right. and and roll over Beethoven. And, also, right, like the the um, like we'd had by the time the Beatles came, we'd had ten years of Elvis. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And and I mean, Conrad Birdie is supposed to be is Elvis, Elvis. essentially, yeah, right, right? Because he gets inducted to the army. Yeah. Same thing, Elvis. And that's what. Yeah. And that's that's the idea that it's this big. Uh, it's this big pub- publicity thing. Okay, I take back what I said about. I take back what I said about the Beatles. I do think they mark a, a profound. They're coming to America, playing on the Ed Sullivan show. I think that does mark a profound shift in in American yeah. public. And, and I think it's, it's the kind of an event that might want, Matt Weiner really would enjoy writing an episode around or using it as sort of like a, in the background to you know the same way that the Cuban Missile Crisis is in the background of things. Well, you know what was subversive about the Beatles was their haircuts. Um, you know, no, I'm serious, right? Like, and even like, you know, hair, hair really matters, uh, in the world of Mad Men. I mean, I, I've talked about Don's kind of, you know, he has his very combed over look, you know, even Pete, when he's fuming about not getting the, uh, promotion mentions Kenny and his haircut. Um, and you know, I think the thing that a lot of like older reactionary types, uh, honed in on, on the Beatles was, was the mop tops. You know, and even that was different from, you know, Elvis's pompadour. Um, well, fair that enough, was yeah. Still I mean, very like, done up do. Well, Pete has, um, Pete has what? Like a, a kind of bowl cut, a lot, of, you know? Or I guess that was just in the last episode when he was sick and his hair was. But he busses his hair on purpose. Yeah, his, hair, his, hair was, his hair was not slicked back. Hey, we're coming up on the hour mark here, so I want to close with, uh, I want to close with a question. I kind of, I kind of, um, Answered this myself uh, in in <laughs> my answer about uh, or in my talking about Mad Men being a show about uh, both a man and a, and a society, uh, our society, our culture, our our nation, uh, the soul of our nation. But um, what do you think it is that makes Mad Men a great show? You know, I think I mean I think we can agree, right? Like we we are we are three guys whose opinions often diverge about a number of things. I like Glee. Belinky likes Pokemon. Well, okay. Ryan let me. Sheely likes being a professor. But well, let me make a statement about Mad Men. 
Is Those that, are so, like, not mutually exclusive. You said a very bad, like, that's a false trichotomy right there. <laughs> right. So I, I want to just put the que- I want to put the question in, and let's close on this. Uh, I want to put the question to you. What is, what is this show's claim to greatness? I, I, I want to I get something off my chest about Mad Men that, that I feel a little bit chastened by the whole Glee firefight that we had, where I sort of claim that, like, uh, that Glee, there were objective standards of what I expect from television writing and Glee did not meet them and oh. and I was I was basically smacked down and, and and pretty much convinced that like I perhaps misstated the case that that those are my standards but like Glee doesn't have uh, any responsibility to live up to them well and that's, so that, and that's that, the thing Matt like I, I'm glad I'm glad we're having this talk now like it's yeah. totally... I'm also glad we're not having it on the, the <laughs> yeah. fucking teenagers on the podcast. <laughs> on the Glee or Gossip Girl podcast. No, or on the main, or on the main Overthinking It podcast. Or on the site whose many comment threads we, you know, I, we I filed. <laughs> it's perfectly okay to say, you know what? This is not my cup of tea. I am not into this. Yeah. Right? But and that's, this is what I was going to say, that, uh, that I think maybe Mad Men is not quite my cup of tea, to tell you the truth. That I like it a huh. lot. I, you I like recognize it. I like, the artistry of it. You recognize yeah, the achievement. No, no, no. And, and that's I'm not gonna say that like Madman is not well written. It clearly is well written. Uh there's very, very talented people doing exactly what they want to do. I feel like Madman will never be my favorite show on television because I think it's it's just too slow paced. It's too meandering, it's a little too self-indulgent. That I, I guess I like shows that are a little bit more they I, I guess what I'm saying is that, like, the finale of Mad Men was a really exciting hour of television, and mm-hmm. I don't think Mad Men is usually that exciting. And I guess I like shows that are, like, more like, wow, what's going to happen next? Oh, my God, what's going to happen in the next episode? And Mad Men is a little more like, wow, that was a great hour of television. I can't wait till next week. Yeah. I Well, I, I agree that it has that quality of kind of reverie that I... Right, I, and, and I, th- I think it's not quite to my taste, mm-hmm. but I, I will certainly not say that Mad Men is not a great show. Well, it's... And this is, I think, this is a huge thing that we can sort of recognize the achievement of it. It, it, Both as as writing, since you're a writer, I I think the writing is is phenomenal, and also as a as a television production, right? Where the uh, something that we haven't talked about, but the 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 production design, the haircuts, the ladies' hair, the um, uh, uh, oh, you know what? They there. This was in all the magazines, kind of in the first thing. How they uh, when they dress the sets, they put different colors of lipstick on the cigarette butts in the ashtrays because not all the ladies would wear the same color lipstick. And it's, yeah, and, and, you know, it was, it's done it to that out, level. Uh, of- but that's a, that's a plot point too, right? I mean, you, you, said, uh, you could con- construe that as being a sort of, um, you know, overly obsessive detail. But then there is a plot point early on, like the thing that leads uh, that, that opens the door to Peggy becoming a copywriter is that she, you know, sits in on a, a lipstick tester, uh, you know, sees everyone throw away their testers. I'm sorry, um, I didn't and, mean, and calls I didn't it a, mean basket, to like... a basket full of kisses. Yeah. I didn't mean to. Um, I, oh, right, yeah, your basket full of kisses. Mark your man, Beljolie. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, so that's actually very. So but, oh, right, but, but so I'm even not, there, the I details to... matter. No, I no, I know. I didn't mean to give the impression that I thought it was overly fastidious. I think it's just the the right amount. Of fastidious, and that level yeah. of attention to detail is something that I admire in the production of the show. Oh, sure, yeah. but I wanted to bring out that even that small amount of fastidiousness, like, is it, 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 it all comes it back. plays a role. It all comes back. It all, it all comes together. 
The thing that really blew my mind, one of the blogs pointed out in the Kennedy assassination episode that uh, when Pete goes to visit Beard Guy or whatever it is, and, and, the, and they're talking, and, and the TV is on in the background, it's on to uh, Walter Cronkite, right. and when the secretaries come in to get the news, they change the channel to, I think, Brickley and Hunter, and, it, and, it, and it, it, it's a subtle thing that, like, nobody but, like, somebody who was obsessed about the 60s would know, that was, like, the much more proletariat newscast, that was the number one newscast, and it was sort of the intellectuals that liked Walter Cronkite. So the idea that, you know, it's even as subtle as, like, who do you turn to when the president gets shot to give you that news? Um, And I mean, like, yeah, it's got this obsessive level of detail that that you would never know unless you watch the special features on the DVD. So, uh, Ryan, great show. Oh, absolutely. I think it's I mean, I think a lot of I think we've hit a lot of it in that it's this it has this interplay between kind of detail and sweeping and sort of sweeping generalization uh, and, and sort of sweeping themes. I mean, I think it's interesting in that um, I, so I first got into it on DVD. I watched season one on DVD and season two live. And I mean, really like this, I guess this is the first season I've been watching it though, which I had kind of regular cable, like, like regular eyes to access to cable TV. And I actually found myself tuning in every week and I don't know, I mean, it isn't like there are huge cliffhangers in the way that, like, say, 24 uh, has, or even, like, a... Or, a, or a, The Shield. Not to bring up The Shield again. The Shield is my wire. Um, like, I mean, that, that's yeah, a well, show where it's, like, it's oh, my God. Brilliant. I mean, it's brilliant. But, that, but that's yeah, so I, but I think it's interesting is that no. even without these, I think something about... Uh, you know, it's not that there. Are, I'm, I can't think of a good example of a show that's been just too boring for me to keep up. But they they exist, and this is just like the right amount of, you know, whether it's things. You know, there are these kinds of shocking moments, right? I mean, this season had a fair number of them. I mean, there's the lawnmower, there's the um, there's the the blackface routine that we referred to earlier. There's also the Jones smashing the vase over Doctor McRapey's head. Um, you know, there's there's these kinds of there's this kind of um, audacity, this reverie, but there's it's it's, it, it, it's there's a rhythm to it, and it's it's not totally predictable. And that you know, you have this like beautiful production design and, you know, attractively dressed characters, and then things happen at a, at a rate that you can't understand. So, and I think that that uncertainty about that, you know, makes it addictive is that if nothing ever happened, it wouldn't be worth watching. But, um, you know, but the fact that, you know, you know, maybe there will be an episode where lots of stuff happens, like at the finale, and it's like a basically a madcap caper, and then episodes where, you know, all of a sudden out of nowhere, a guy's foot gets chopped off. You know, yeah. it, the, the, there, there's, there's this kind of meta uncertainty. feeling of, of foreboding over the show. Am mm. I don't mind by saying that? That there's almost this no, you're feeling, right. and I, I, th- I think it's on purpose because they're at the beginning of this huge cultural revolution, and there's this feeling that, like, you know, disaster lurks at every corner. Somebody could find out Don's secret. A guy could get his foot chopped off. You know, well, the, and that's uh, the, the Cold War, war right? There's that feeling in the, like the Cold War is a, was exactly, a time where exactly. bombs could go there's off a, and annihilate us all. Uncertainty that hangs over everything, and that that I, I think you were right about punctuated equilibrium. That like you know um, maybe the British take over the office, and everyone's afraid they're going to get fired, and really nobody gets fired, right? I mean, nobody right. important, but or then, but then you know something could sh- happen, and half the cast quits the agency in about twenty minutes of show. Yeah, right. You know, so so it, it is really hard to predict. Um, and maybe that quality, and, and it has 
Yeah, I, I mean, maybe that quality of, of unpredictability, uh, but but sort of earned unpredictability, as opposed to yeah, kind of exactly. It's not it's not just fooling with you. It's it's it has a it has a plan. Yeah, it's not lost. Right, lost lost makes me feel like it's manipulating the audience for the sake of manipulating the audience. But Mad Men, I feel they know what they're doing. Yeah, whether you like what they're doing or not. Well, that's they know- oh, and that's a, that's another thing, right? The feeling of being in good hands narratively. Yes, that, that Mad Men definitely has going. For it had a West Wingian quality of yeah. like these these are these are excellent writers at the top of their game. Well, West Wing writer. For the first four I, yeah, years, so, yeah, I mean, the West, he had a, he had a fairly insane. He has, he has, he yeah, he wrote like a hundred episodes of that show. He had a writer's nope. room. Who does that? Yeah, well, no, only this guy. And, and no, him. and David E. Kelly. David E. Kelly wrote like every episode of all the David E. Kelly shows well, for I a guess, long. Yeah, I guess, I guess so. Uh, about the many, about the many, many incarnations of sexy, Michelle, sexy, Michelle. Yeah, sexy, sexy blondes like uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Right. Yeah. They're all they're all types of Michelle Pfeiffer. Anyway, uh, we should leave it there. If you want to add to the conversation about Mad Men, um, you know, we might do a listener feedback show just for Mad Men. If you yeah, like, I like talking about Mad Men. Um, we're we're going to put this out on the uh, we're going to put this out on the main podcast feed. If you are listening to this, there is still there's an overthinking it podcast episode 71 uh, that came out Monday morning. Uh, Monday, November 9th, the anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, so if you are actually looking for the Overthinking It podcast, A, thank you for listening to this podcast supplement about Mad Men, and B, you can find it uh, in iTunes in your podcatcher or on uh, on the website. Uh, also, if you like this, don't forget to check out the These Effing Teenagers podcast, which you can find on iTunes by searching for These F Star 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 Ing Teenagers, uh, which is Sheely and my show about Gossip Girl and Glee and the social implications. I particularly recommend that you uh, check out episode five, Gossip Girl Implications for Public Policy. <laughs> this next one's going to be good, though, because it's going to. I think I think we're going to talk about uh, Kenneth, Kenneth Waltz's theory of international relations and multipolarity. <laughs> <laughs> in the in bed. Exactly. Uh, if you want to add to any of these conversations, uh, the, you know how to do it. Uh, use the contact form on the site. Leave a comment on the show notes. Email podcast at overthinkingit.com or call 20EATLOG01. That's 203-285-6401. And as always, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve, deserve.